we're missing out on getting children the best nutrition they need in their first thousand days and in a way that prevents undernutrition both in early childhood but also protects against overnutrition later on in life. This is an ENN podcast on the prevention of wasting to complement our recently published brief. Best practice in preventing child wasting within the wider context of undernutrition. A briefing note for policymakers and programme implementers. Welcome everyone. I'm Kate Sadler, Technical Associate for ENN. And I'm here with Natalie Sessions, who also works at ENN. And we're here to discuss the prevention of wasting in the context of global action, challenges and knowledge gaps. We're hoping that the discussion will build on our recently released brief entitled Best Practice in Prevention of Child Wasting Within the Wider Context of Undernutrition, and we'll draw out some of the programme and policy implications of, of this work. We're really lucky to have Gronya Maloney, who is the Senior Advisor for Early Childhood Nutrition at UNICEF, to help us talk through some of these issues from a UNICEF perspective. Welcome, Gronya, And I'll hand over to, to Natalie now, who's going to ask the first question. Great. Thank you so much, Kate. And thank you, Gronya, for taking the time to speak to us today. The work around the Wasting and Stunting Project has really highlighted the separation in policy, guidance and resourcing for wasting and stunting. And this limits the sustained recovery of the wasted child and the prevention of further episodes of wasting with implications for linear growth. As such, we suggest that there's a need to shift policy directives and funding support towards simultaneously tacking both stunting and wasting. And I was wondering if you could share UNICEF's perspective on this and how does the recently developed UNICEF strategy link these two manifestations of undernutrition? Thank you so much and I'm delighted to be online today for such an important and timely conversation. So yes indeed I fully concur with what ENN's position is in raising these concerns about why we are tackling both funding and policy, why we're tackling these forms of undernutrition uh, separately. And while I, I, I think there has been some fantastic advocacy initiatives in each particular area, we now need to reset the agenda and bring them back together and say it's about tackling and preventing all forms of undernutrition that uh, young children face. Because in most cases, the drivers are actually the same and the solutions are the same. And that artificial separation has not really helped our dialogue. So it is really a great time to come together and say, well, actually, we know what to do to tackle and prevent all forms of undernutrition in early childhood. We also know what to do to treat when our prevention actions fail. So let's have one common narrative that addresses the child holistically and that addresses the package of interventions holistically, while recognizing that in certain contexts, we might need to do things a bit differently but also making sure that wasting comes out of the traditional kind of pillar it's been in around emergencies and it's much more central to our routine public health services that we see throughout the world. And for example, in, in 2020, UNICEF and Partners globally reached about 5 million children under five with services for treatment for severe wasting. Um, but about 89% of those children were in emergency contexts. However, we know that two thirds of severely wasted children globally 
are not in emergency contexts. So that's one kind of example of where our narrative needs a revision and we need to look at streamlining our efforts into one narrative and reaching all the children that need support. So we have two new exciting documents from UNICEF that aims to address this issue. One is our new global nutrition strategy that was released in December of last year. And it's a 10 year strategy that will take us to the SDGs in 2030. And the overall universal premise of that strategy is prevention of all forms of undernutrition comes first, but when prevention fails, treatment is a must. And that encompasses everything that we do, everything from early childhood nutrition to adolescent, to school age, to maternal, to food systems, food fortification, and then our programming in emergencies on wasting so that the prevention aspect is integrated throughout. We all have responsibility towards it. And then we recognize that we need to have, as part of our core mandate, the support and the facilities and the networks and capacity to respond to those children who do become uh, wasted. So that's our global strategy and that's our guiding strategy for the next 10 years. And then specifically um, within that strategy, we have what we call our no time to waste approach, which then unpacks further what that actually looks like in practice in terms of prevention, early identification and treatment of wasting in early childhood. Great. Thank you so much, Ganya. You really laid out the exciting new pieces of policy that UNICEF's developed clearly. And as you say, a new narrative is, is needed. So it'll be exciting to see how those progress. I think the next question is linked. What we found is that under the WAST project, that our work has highlighted that many practitioners are unclear on what joined up wasting and stunting programming looks like in practice. Mm-hmm. So as a follow up to everything you said about how UNICEF is is moving forward with new strategy and operationally linking all forms of undernutrition. We wondered whether you could say something on what you think combined programming might look like. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's in fact, I think the challenge is, is that in the past, and myself included, I think many of us on the call and and in the sector, we've been divided into emergency specialists and then development specialists. So we have developed a certain skill set and an exposure over our years of, of work at programming at, at sort of the field level or in programs and then kind of at our headquarter level. So that, that created this artificial divide of, you know, somebody works on breastfeeding, someone else works on, on CMAM. And I think that is probably has really helped uh, drive this division between what we need to look at for wasting and what we need to look at for everything else. And, and predominantly the focus on wasting program has been around treatment for a good reason, because that was a priority. We needed to identify these interventions that we know could work at scale, that were effective, that were feasible, that we could deliver in different contexts. But I think now what we've recognized is, is through our work on wasting treatment is that we've missed the uh, prevention aspect. Because globally, we can see that while we've had massive success in driving down uh, numbers of stunted children, For example, we've got 55 million less stunted children now than we did uh, 20 years ago. We can't say the same for wasting. Our our numbers of of, of wasted children year in, year out remain the same or or go higher. And that basically has flagged to us that we're missing something. And what is it that we're doing uh, or that we're not doing that we need to do more of to make sure that we have one overall program to address all forms of undernutrition that can address stunting, micronutrient deficiencies and wasting but recognizes that it's one overall program, but it will need certain tweaks in certain contexts. 
One of the challenges is that in our wasting treatment programs, the areas we're programming, as I alluded to earlier, are predominantly emergency settings. So the drivers of undernutrition, including stunting micronutrient deficiencies and wastings in those contexts, are complex, they're multifaceted, they're huge, and they're a bit overwhelming. So in many ways, we've kind of, that's why we've avoided them, because it's, it's almost impossible to get your head around how do we actually do this. But what we know now is that our other undernutrition programs where we see the massive reduction in stunting numbers, it works. So we just need to expand those programs in all contexts. So in emergency context, we should not just be looking at treatment interventions as our priority. We need to look at both. And we need to remember that the best outcome for our children in these contexts is actually not to become undernourished at all. It's not just about saving their lives. It's also about protecting them for any form of, um, of undernutrition because it has longer term effects on them well into their life. So the, the interventions that traditionally have been used, let's say, for the kind of stunting reduction programs are fundamentally the same drivers of protecting against all forms of undernutrition. In 2008 and in 2013, and then more recently this year, the Lancet series published the list of the core actions, which we are all well aware of. Uh, exclusive bre breastfeeding for the first six months is the number one intervention in terms of protection of all forms of undernutrition. It's been shown over and over and over again that that is the biggest driver in uh, protecting against all forms of undernutrition, as well as sustained breastfeeding up to the age of two and beyond. So that has to be core to any prevention agenda as the number one intervention that we promote at scale everywhere for all children. Number two is access to good diets, including breastfeeding. But now as we're moving into the complementary feeding period, how do we make sure that our children, when they're transitioning into complementary feeding at the age of six months, are accessing the right foods with the right nutrient quantity in the right quantity. And that's where we're, we have the major deficit in our programming globally. And I would say that's the area, the biggest area for opportunity, but it's also the biggest area for challenge. And that's why these upcoming global advocacy events, the UN Food System Summit and Nutrition for Growth, are really important times for us to put children's diets front and center to say we're missing out on getting children the best nutrition they need in the second part of their first thousand days, and in a way that prevents undernutrition both in early childhood, but also protects against overnutrition later on in life. And I think that's what's so, what, what the evidence and the science has shown us over and over again, healthy nutrition in those first thousand days is not just protective against undernutrition, but it's also protective against future risk of obesity and overweight. So child diet is a big, a big challenge. And what we are looking at in UNICEF, we have new programming guidance that we released last year that promotes a systems approach to addressing child diets. So basically, it says that we know that we cannot achieve good children's diet just alone through the health system. We need to engage our food system. We need to engage our water and sanitation system. We need to engage our social protection system. And we need to engage our education system as well as the health system. And these systems together all play a role in, in making sure our youngest children have access to good food. And they do it in different ways. But the first way that how we need to recognize what opportunities and what interventions we need to focus on is doing a bit of a landscape analysis of how these systems support child diets at country level, even at a lower level, it could be at a community level or at a district level, and identifying what are the major barriers to that child accessing that diet through these different systems, and then flipping it, what are the opportunities that then we can build and leverage these systems to actually help that child achieve that diet. 
So, for example, social protection systems have played a huge role in targeting their transfers or whatever type of cash or other transfers they, they may be supporting to the youngest children under two years and making them large enough that carer or the mother can actually buy the food that that child needs, such as an egg a week or some sort of fortified foods that are relevant for that child and making sure that the nutrients that that child consumes meet their nutrition needs. Now, we have also looked at what foods are available locally to meet the nutrient needs. And in fact, there's still a lot of great locally available foods, such as the small dried fish, such as liver, other organ meat, that um, may be more affordable, though still expensive in, in many contexts where young children can actually achieve their full nutrient needs. But then there are cases, too, where the local diet is not sufficient. And in those cases, particularly in food insecure and fragile states, we, we need to look at other options. So there are options such as using micronutrient powders for home-based fortification of children's food or in more severely food insecure contexts to prevent that child from becoming wasted and indeed from becoming undernourished in general. There's fantastic evidence coming out now on the role of small quantity lipid nutrient supplements to really provide a protective effect against anemia and against wasting when given for a defined duration of time in these particular contexts. So we've talked about breastfeeding, we've talked about complementary feeding, and obviously then there's a whole package of supportive interventions around that child to make sure they're healthy, make sure they're vaccinated, that they are being monitored if they are sick, that they're receiving the care that they need, and then of course access to a safe public health environment around the water sector too. So if we were to, to intervene with all of these interventions, we would protect that child from all forms of undernutrition, specifically wasting, and then just reiterating that there are certain contexts where you do need to adapt your strategy based on your drivers that are needed to, to be implemented at scale. Brilliant. Thanks, Gonya. It's a lot of food for thought there. I was just thinking, gosh, the work that ENN has been doing and the, and the brief that we've produced also underlines the fact that multiple drivers, multi-sectoral drivers are complex and can be overwhelming, yet that approach that UNICEF is taking in their new strategy and in no time to waste, looking at things from a systems perspective, but also a life cycle approach helps to figure out what interventions should be delivered when. And that includes, of course, I know in your strategy, a big focus on mother's right as well, something we highlight in our brief, given a large portion of wasting and stunting is present at birth. We really need to be focusing on getting mums nutritionally well and healthy in order that they give birth to healthy babies. Yeah, in fact, thanks for raising that, Kate. That's one of the areas that actually excites me the most because it's getting a big resurgence and there's a much stronger evidence base now on the role of different interventions during pregnancy to reduce the risk of low birth weight and to improve outcomes in general for mom and baby. And UNICEF has been partnering with Gates in, in several countries and governments on the use of the multiple micronutrient supplements. And the evidence is fantastic. So using the multiple micronutrient supplements in place of the traditional iron folate has shown to really see some significant improvements. I think it's up to a 12% reduction in low birth weight. And again, a relatively cheap and easy and simple intervention can have such a profound impact on reducing low birth weight. And we all recognize that if, if an infant is born already small, the future risk of stunting and wasting is pretty much guaranteed. So protecting that infant from actually being born underweight does not only make sense in terms of a feasible, simple intervention, but also for, for the rights of that child to be born in, in a healthy way. And that, of course, is a core part of the Global Action Plan on Wasting, is how do we bring these different pieces together 
to make sure that we end up with a reduced burden overall for, of, of wasted children. Thanks, Kenya. You've touched on it there around, our next question is, is really around the, the framework for the Global Action Plan on Child's Wasting, which was developed last year, and the set ambitious objectives for reducing wasting prevalence and its aims to reposition prevention at the center of collective efforts to achieve those objectives. And we recently at ENN had a podcast with Saul Guerrero from one of your UNICEF colleagues who provided an update on the implementation of the gap generally at country and global level. But I was wondering if you could comment specifically on how wasting prevention efforts fit into this process and any progress that has been made on this at country level. Um, thanks. Yes. Yeah, so what's exciting about the Global Action Plan on Wasting and what's different about it, I think, compared to other initiatives that we've been involved in, is, is that it has four outcomes, but three of them are related to prevention. Because in the past, there has been so much focus on treatment for good reason uh, that that focus was important. But now we know what to do on the treatment side. It's just a question of financing and scaling it up. But we need to do a lot more on, on the prevention. So there are four outcomes. The first one is on reduced incidence of low birth weight. The second is improved infant and young child feeding. The third is improved child health. And then the fourth is improving early detection and treatment of child wasting. So I think each of those other three outcomes on prevention require a large amount of effort and they require bringing in new actors that may not be so aware of the importance of prevention of wasting. So, for example, on the reduced incidence of low birth weight, as just mentioned, there's a lot of new evidence, exciting evidence coming out on the role of uh, multiple macronutrient supplements and then on the role of maternal nutrition in general. And we have a lot of new partners coming online recognizing, look, if we don't intervene at this stage in a serious way and in an intentional way, we're not going to have success. And I think the priority in the past, and for those of us who've been working on this for a long time, has been providing pregnant women with uh, some sort of a Unimix or a CSB super cereal in an emergency context. But now we recognize, no, we need to do a lot more earlier on uh, before the woman becomes pregnant and then while she's pregnant. So there's an increased focus on adolescent nutrition in girls and making sure they're not anemic, making sure that they know what it is that they need mm. to eat, and also recognizing that the risk of overweight and obesity is also a driver for low birth weight. So making sure we have well-nourished, healthy adolescent girls so that then when they are older and they do become pregnant, they are in a better nutritional position to have a healthy infant. Um, however, in vulnerable contexts where access to good nutrition and, and nutrient-appropriate diets is not available for during pregnancy, then recognizing that interventions such as multiple micronutrient supplements are relevant and working with governments to get them as part of their core treatment, not just as a kind of a, an in-kind donation from the likes of ourselves, UNICEF or other partners, but saying, no, no, you need to have this in your national policies during pregnancy that women can access these micronutrient supplements. But then also making sure that we're working with our ANC colleagues and our maternal and newborn care colleagues in WHO, in, in the other agencies, to say that weight monitoring and nutrition counseling and guidance is central to the ANC visits during uh, during pregnancy too, so that we really mitigate against any risk of low birth weight much earlier on. And then once the infant is born, the immediate need is to start early initiation of breastfeeding. But we also recognize that for those infants that are that are born small or that are born sick, it's not so easy for them. Maybe their mother is also unwell. So you have a mother-baby pair that will need additional support. And we recognize that with this great new work on the MAMI Care Pathway, which is getting a lot of global attention, as are this cohort of, of infants that have kind of been neglected 
I would say by the nutrition community to some extent in recent years, that their needs are now having an increased focus, that we need to intervene much earlier. We need to provide skilled lactation support to those mothers and infant pairs. We need not to let them slip through the cracks and we need to make sure we are tracking their weight. Now, all children will not be born at the perfect weight or will not achieve it. But as long as they're gaining weight as per their trajectory, that's what we want to see. So how do we make sure those moms and babies can get the nutrition they need? So through the Mammy Care Pathway is a great model. And then where there are challenges of accessing breast milk, that there are other solutions, either through donor milk banks or when, for example, there is no access to breast milk, that there are access to BMS under the right conditions supported by the government. Hopefully we will see big traction on the reduced incidence of low birth weight through those interventions right from adolescence through pre-pregnancy, through pregnancy, and then once the infant is born. I've already talked quite a bit about improved infant and young child feeding and the recognizing that in some contexts we need to do a bit more. Cancelling is not enough. We need to look at access. We need to look at utilization. So on the access side, it may be that some sort of MNPs or SQLNS are needed in certain contexts. Uh, also, on the access side, that social protection transfers can help increase access to higher value foods that will be needed. And then on the utilization side, making sure that child is a healthy environment and that they're able to absorb the nutrients that they're consuming. And then the third outcome on prevention is really around improved child health. And that's core to our work. We know that health and nutrition outcomes are symbiotic. They kind of interplay on each other and directly influence each other. So if we don't have a healthy child, the nutrient needs go up. If the child isn't taking enough nutrients, obviously the risk to become sick are higher. So making sure that our children are vaccinated, making sure that they are treated when they get sick, when they have diarrhea or pneumonia, protect them from malaria, because all of these issues have major impacts on their risk of malnutrition and making sure that we deliver these services through reduced uh, low birth rate, infant and child feeding, improved child health and early detection and treatment in a collective manner so that that mom and that child only have to go to one port of call to get access to all those services and making sure they're delivered in an integrated, scalable, effective and feasible way. Great. Thank you so much, Kanya. That's a really comprehensive set of actions um, and really exciting to see all the work that's happening around the, the gap. And as you say, the focus on three of the four objectives, focusing on prevention. In terms of, I know countries have started based on the gap developing roadmaps. And I was wondering if you feel you see that same level of commitment to prevention at the country level, um, as well as at the global level. So before I came to this post, I was actually supporting the countries in the eastern and southern African region develop their country action plans. And to a large extent, a lot of the actions are already there at country level, but it may be that they're under different policies and different strategies. So, for example, around improved child health, those interventions will already be existing in many cases in, an, in a national health policy or in a, in a health plan. The same with low birth weight. And then the CMAM or traditionally might have its own standalone plan. So I think what, what the gap has done is it's bringing, as I mentioned, these different players to come and sit around the table to say, we need to work collectively towards a common goal. And each of us has a role to play in that goal. And we each need to hold each other accountable. So by putting together these different sort of sectors and different focus areas and outcomes into one plan, it visually creates that accountability and it shows that we're all contributing to something bigger. So yes, I would say that there, and I, and also I would say that there is a lot of interest, particularly on the prevention side. I think there's a recognition that 
we need to do more. And what the gap has helped to do is to kind of package it in an easy to communicate way where country teams in the government and the partners can visually say, okay, if we do X, Y, Z, this will lead to our ultimate goal. So some of the action plans that we're now seeing coming out, really um, some of them have more emphasis on, on different outcomes, depending on their context, uh, which makes complete sense. It has to work for that country and it has to be something that the government is comfortable with and what it, it aligns with the government priorities. So yes, I would say there is, there is excitement and commitment. I would say it brings together a different network of people that we've done in the past, particularly crossing over into the child health and the, the maternal and newborn health um, angle. But I would also say there is appetite for this. So going forward, hopefully we, we will start to see some impact in the coming years where the burden will come down over time. It's really good to hear of that understanding appetite for prevention efforts alongside treatment coming from country level and we certainly heard quite a bit about that with our podcast discussions with Malawi and with Pakistan and both those countries are really trying to figure out how to prioritise prevention of wasting within their national nutrition strategies and, and action plans alongside prevention of stunting and our discussion actually with Mr. Mr. Sylvester Kutumba, the nutrition focal point at the MOH in Malawi, mm -hmm. he highlighted several areas that he'd really like to see strengthen mm -hmm. to more effectively address prevention of wasting there. Mm -hmm. and, and two of those included improving the national growth monitoring and promotion program to more effectively promote the health and growth of children and a more comprehensive scaling up of child survival interventions that we know work. Mm -hmm. And both of these, of course, have broader relevance beyond just Malawi. So we were wondering how UNICEF's work, including planning around implementation of the gap for wasting, could and is supporting countries in these in these endeavours. Yeah, that's a great example because it's not a one size fits all. It's very much countries have to understand what are their drivers and their priorities and areas where they feel they can really make change. We're not expecting everybody to do everything at scale immediately. And obviously the timeline of the gap is the next three or four years. So we have to be pragmatic about what is achievable in this time frame. So, for example, if Malawi is choosing growth monitoring, then great, uh, as that's a good strategy for them to identify earlier children who are growth faltering and then intervene. And Malawi has also shown some great results. Their waiting levels are so low now, but they know they're in a vulnerable context and that the next drought or the next economic crisis can also risk undermining that. So by interventions such as growth monitoring makes complete sense. UNICEF is working in all 22 GAP countries and with the other UN partners, working with the government through these four different outcomes to put together these plans. I think six have been finalized and uploaded and in fact will be used as a core part of the Nutrition for Growth Summit commitments by these countries for the N4G Summit in December. So therefore that would be an opportunity for the governments to make that global pledge and say, yes, we are committed to doing these actions. However, we do need support financially and technically from the different partners globally. So recognizing that it's not just also down to government, it's also a collective responsibility. On the childwasting.org website, you can see examples of the draft roadmaps or the final roadmaps, frankly, that are there so far and the different emphasis different countries are focusing on. Some have put more emphasis on social protection, others on, on child health, which and it's great to see that it is being designed that in, in a way that's appropriate for that particular government. Um, and that's really one of the key roles UNICEF is playing is really to engage, make sure that we get something that makes sense for that government and then make sure it gets finalized and posted on the website. 
and then of course implement it going forward. Great. It's really valuable to hear about how those roadmaps are progressing and like you say, how they will shape the support that agencies like UNICEF provide for country governments to address wasting. Just building on the podcast that we did with Malawi and and also the podcast that we conducted with Dr. Kouadja, the National Nutrition Coordinator for Pakistan, these podcasts highlighted the need for a much better understanding of which interventions in their context are the most cost effective for prevention of wasting in order so that they can better prioritize the use of resources and maximize impacts. From UNICEF's perspective, I was wondering if you could share what you think is needed to fill these knowledge gaps at country level and how UN agencies can help with this. Specifically, is UNICEF supporting work to explore context-specific analysis of the most important drivers of wasting and the cost effectiveness and efficiency of prevention activities in different contexts? That's a great question, Ashley, because now that we we know what to do, but we now need to prove that it is working now that we have this commitment uh, of governments and partners around this agenda. So certainly the evidence generation to, as a kind of to say, look, we are reducing burden is essential. I think Malawi speaks for itself because they have shown that they have reduced the burden consistently over several years. But in many other contexts, we haven't had that success. But it's because we've not been intervening with the interventions that we need at the scale that we need on time. So yes, UNICEF has started collaborating with ILRI in uh, several countries in Western and Central Africa, where they are running operational research to actually show that if you intervene with this package of interventions, then we expect waiting levels to reduce. So there, that is ongoing on in several countries. And we do anticipate that uh, results should come out in the next couple of years. That's being supported by a series of donors, and we're excited to see what comes out of there as it's the Sahel. Given that the, the burden of wasting is so huge in the Sahel, that if we can show interventions that work in reducing burden, that that's something that can be replicated in other contexts. We're also looking at similar types of interventions in Eastern and Southern Africa. Of course, now with the emerging new crisis in Ethiopia, in Yemen, what we're finding is, unlike before, our country teams are now reaching out and saying, we want to do more on prevention. What can we do in these big emergencies? So that it's becoming a core part of the work now. It's not just assumed that securing the OETF pipeline is the main issue. It's like, no, 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 we also need to look at how do we protect these children. So through those interventions as well, we expect to generate some evidence. There's a, a really interesting study that's coming to conclusion early next year in northern Kenya on the role, and it builds off the work where it's a randomized control trial with UNICEF Concern and FAO with Washington State University doing the research on providing vouchers for fodder for households with children under two, which will keep them throughout the dry season, which means that they can keep lactating animals at the household and then sustaining access to milk for young children, because we know in this context it can provide up to two-thirds of the nutrient intake in the day. So if you take away that milk because of the drought, then you see a dramatic increase in wasting. So the hypothesis of giving of a much earlier intervention, such as providing vouchers to protect the child from becoming wasted, is being tested through this intervention. And if it's successful, and we anticipate it will be, hopefully, that that becomes then a much earlier intervention of the government because it's been done with government. So when early warning says there's a drought, likely to come in the next few months that they quickly intervene with these interventions and then you can protect that cohort from becoming wasted. So yeah, lots of different models around the same premise of securing child health, reducing low birth weight, improving diets, and then treating when needed. 
but adapted to the context. Great to hear of, of that extension to the to the Milk Matters work, which in those contexts, ensuring access to the foods that are most nutritionally important to children through hunger, dry seasons is, is crucial. Just one last small follow-up question to this last question around causal analysis specifically, because I, I was thinking a bit about that whilst doing the, the work with ENN, the fact that there's been quite a lot of effort in the past decade to come up with tools, hasn't there, for causal analysis? You know, how do you figure out which causes are the most important in different contexts and therefore using that to design an intervention package? But none of them have really taken off because it's complex, so complex to do. So from what I hear, UNICEF is taking a slightly different angle on that and looking at okay sure taking into account different contexts but looking at what intervention packages are ultimately most effective in those contexts is is that right yes exactly i think what we all know by now is that there's no silver bullets for this it's a combination of interventions and it's a combination of systems that support those interventions that ultimately is what makes sense and i think the success on the stunting side showed that it really has to be an all of multi-system approach to address the drivers so there's no silver bullet but it's about addressing these interventions that are relevant for that context for example, securing milk in, in pastoral children for pastoral children during the dry season, but also making sure they're healthy and making sure you know that they have everything else they need to grow well. And it's making sure that we're protecting that, that child with the direct interventions that child needs, but then more broadly, we're protecting the community around that child so that they have access to sufficient food, access to sufficient services and, and the public health environment. So almost we're kind of going back a bit, but being much more deliberate to say, we've got to and we have an obligation to intervene through all these systems to support that child and really taking the accountability away just from nutrition and making it much more broader and a sort of a senior leadership level in governance to say look there's a lot more at play here and everybody needs to get on board to solve this issue and we need to do it in a systematic way that makes sense so yes i would agree we are uh, moving away from the silver bullet and kind of looking at the distinct drivers but recognizing that it is a multi-system multi-sectoral approach that will ultimately make those gains in reducing burden thank you so much Ganya. we so appreciate your time and and hearing all the really important insights from from unicef and i know our audience will be really interested in hearing these reflections from you so appreciate your time i'm not sure if you have any final reflections or thoughts you'd like to leave us with just to say, I really appreciate the work that ENN is doing on the subject area too, and look forward to collaborating with all partners to move forward on this important agenda. Thanks, Gornia. For more information on ENN's work exploring the relationship between wasting and stunting, as well as a link to ENN's publication, Best Practices in Preventing Child Wasting Within the Wider Context of Undernutrition, Please visit our website, ennonline.net.